loose. Relax. There you go. Get your favorite snack. Make your favorite drink. And have a good time. Get ready to listen to your favorite podcast or your favorite YouTube channel, whichever you're watching us from. Love it, love it, love it. I'll make sure to tag the artist on the social media and all that good stuff. So, before we get started, you got to do me a big, big, big favor. I need you to hit that subscribe button before I get started, all right? So, I'm going to give you a few seconds. All right, perfect. Now, I need you to do one other thing. I need you to hit that notification bell. So, every time we drop a new video, you're notified. So, I'll give you a few seconds. All right, perfect. Great, great, great. All right. So, welcome to episode 21. Episode 21 of Real Talk with Coach Q and Rocco West. Yes, yes, yes. I guess I officially on episode 21. That is pretty awesome. We are officially legal now, Wes. <laughs> We're officially legal now. Right? You know, that's pretty awesome. You know, we're, we're officially legal. So before we start with the show, we'll do a quick introduction just in case it's the first time you watched us. My name is Kieran McGlory. I am a realtor, meaning that I get to help people buy, sell, and invest in real estate. I'm also a coach. That's why the show is called Real Talk with Coach Q and Brooklyn West. I get the opportunity to coach agents to help them grow successful real estate businesses and all that good stuff. Now I'm going to let Wes share and let you let him tell you what he does. So Wes, tell the people what you do. Why are you called Broker Wes? Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Broker West, a.k.a. the money man, the mortgage wizard, the breaker of financial chains and the bringer of rain. And I am a mortgage broker. My job is to help as many people as I can understand their options when financing a home or other properties. And I also happen to mentor other people in the industry as far as what I do and help them make decisions that are right for their clients. I love that. I love that. All right. Well, Wes and I are really big believers when it comes to personal growth, whether that's listening to audiobooks, reading books. Yeah, I know we we're still those types of people that like touch the book, you know, that with the paper and stuff. Like we still do that kind of stuff, right? And also intense seminars, all that good stuff. So today I'm going to share with you the philosophy of fighting. No, no, no. I'm not telling you to go into the ring and and, and start fighting people. That's not what I'm telling you to do, unless you're doing that professionally. And then hey, have at it, right? But if you're not, it's just about fighting, meaning you're fighting for your dreams. You're fighting for your goals. You're fighting for what you want to, to achieve in life. So I'm going to share with you something that Margaret Thatcher said. Uh, she is she's one of the uh, UK prime ministers. And one of the things that she said is that you have to go to battle more than once for a true victory. Nothing in life comes easy. Nothing in life that's worth it comes easy. Right. So typically, you're going to have to pursue things more than once before you actually succeed, right? Whether that's like, for instance, like Michael Jordan, right? 
Uh, but he tried out for like the with the basketball team didn't make it, right? He tried out for varsity as a sophomore. Uh, varsity as a false sophomore, right? Yeah, he didn't yeah. make it, right? But that didn't stop him, right? He continued to practice and got better, and he still now obviously he went to the NBA and still considered the goat in his generation, all that good stuff, right? So that's just one example. Obviously, with Wes and I, right? Like when we decided to get into into this industry, it wasn't just like, okay, here you go, you know, open the door. Here are your clients; they're all willing to work with you. Have at it. It wasn't like that, right? It's not like that to this day. You know, we still have to, you know, continue to prospect. We still have to continue to reach out to people. We still have to continue to deliver value to people each and every day. We still have to do those things. So it's still a struggle. It's still a fight, you know, for that victory, right? So that's going to be something in your life. Whatever you want to do, you have to understand that you're going to have to fight for it. If someone, they're not, no one's just going to give it to you, especially if it's worth it. You know, like what I get to do with real estate, I absolutely love what I do. I love helping people. It's giving me the ability to provide a great life for my family, but it's not easy. It's not. My wife sees how hard I work, right? It's it's not easy to do it, but I love what I do. It's my passion. So I'm willing to put in the work because I know I'm achieving victories each and every day because I don't give up. I do not stop, right? When any obstacle is in my way, I knock it out. Whether it's one round, two round, three round, 12 rounds, whatever it takes, I accomplish that. Because being an entrepreneur and being this business, you have to understand that you're going to hear no's left and right. But you have to pursue and you have to move forward. You have to continue to fight. And whatever you want to do in your life, you have to understand that you're going to have to fight. It's not going to be an easy win. So accept that you're going to have to battle. Accept you're going to get bruised. Accept you're going to take some losses. But at the end of the day, if you don't give up, you will receive that victory. So, Wes, when you think about that philosophy, what comes to your mind? I think about the great philosopher, Aaliyah, who once said, if you don't, at first you don't succeed, dust yourself off and try again. <laughs> I love it. Um, but yeah, um, so there's another quote I heard the other day that said, basically, winners are not the people who never lose. They're just the people who never quit. And I can remember one of my mentors, he used to have this picture of a pit bull and the pit bull had like all these, um, I don't know what they're called in the porcupine, but the, the tendrils or whatever, the needles, the needles had a, yeah. had a face full of them. And he would always say, you have to have the ferocity of a pit bull. And looking at that picture, we all knew what he meant because you have to think for that dog to continue attacking that porcupine. And these needles are sticking him in the face. <laughs> and the more he attacks, the more. But he's like, I want that porcupine. I must have it. I'm going to ignore the pain I'm going through. I'm going to ignore everything else. I must have it. So, yeah, that's just really what it is. You just have to have the relentlessness to be able to march through whatever obstacles you face, whatever failures, disappointments, or whatnot. You have to be able to march through that to get to where you're going. That's basically it. And those who quit the journey early are those who don't achieve. Oh, absolutely. I love that. All right. Now we move on to the main event. So the main event, government financing. 
is it a disadvantage in today's real estate? So I'm gonna let Wes uh, open with that. So what do you think, Wes? What do you think based on your experience? I think it can be, um, but it certainly has never really held up my buyers. Um, now, certainly you don't get every home that you put an offer in on, but eventually, as long as you continue to do the work, then eventually you'll break through. Um, and this is all inspired by an article I found on realtor.com that came out this week. And to say the least, I was disappointed by some of the things I saw in the article. Um, so one thing they were saying is that basically buyers are people who are using government financing. So let's be clear about that. That would be VA, USDA, or FHA. Buyers who are using those types of financing are losing out to people who are not using that type of financing, specifically conventional financing. And uh, what they're basically saying is that one thing they've noticed is an upward trend. People who are putting down 20% has increased significantly. So right now, or as of May of this year, when they did this, uh, when they looked at this number, 52% of home buyers had put down 20%. And that number is up from 40% of home buyers putting down 20% a decade ago. So that's an interesting fact. And that's something that's noteworthy and all that. And I understand that. Um, also, that could be an impact because medium home prices are up 7.2%. Um, now, one of the things they also said in the article that really bothers me, but I do understand that a lot of sellers or some sellers and some realtors do think this way, which is that they're looking for the strength of a buyer financially, and they tend to feel that they look favorably on people who are putting more money down and tend to think that they are more suitable buyers. Now, the issue I have with that is understanding how finance works. Your suitability as a buyer is about the entire picture. You might have more money to put down, but if you're financing, if you're financing, you still have to be able to qualify for the loan. And Qualifying for the loan, the down payment is only one piece of that, right? It's only one piece of that. And by the way, it's the least important piece because if you're buying a, a conventional home, you can buy that home putting down 5%. And if you qualify with 5% down, then you qualify with 5% down. If you qualify putting 20% down, you qualify putting 20% down. That's just how it works. So that is not a determination of the overall financial health of the buyer. And also it doesn't even speak to whether or not they were qualified properly because, you know, you might have some, you might have enough to put down 20%, but your income might not be enough or the way the loan officer calculated the income may not be suitable for um, qualification purposes. If they included too much overtime income or your hours are really um, inconsistent. So your income is inconsistent. The down payment is just one piece of the puzzle, but I do understand most people tend to think that way. Um, so 85% of home buyers that use FHA are first time home buyers. Again, I don't know why that matters. Most of the industry is first time home buyers. Matter of fact, we kind of need first time home buyers or we're all going to go broke. <laughs> so I don't have a problem with that. You shouldn't have a problem with that. Um, 
Now, the other thing is they talked about like the average credit score, or whatever people who buy with conventional versus FHA. The average is 760 for someone who buys with conventional financing, which I find it hard to believe just personal experience. And then they said with FHA financing, it's like 676. But 676 is not a bad credit score. The average is 640, right? So that's not a bad, that's not really a bad credit score. Um, but that's how people look at it. But the biggest things I had an issue with, and I'm going to read this here. Some sellers may favor conventional loans because government-backed loans require the home to have an appraisal before it is sold. Okay. If you're financing, whether it's conventional, FHA, if you're going to ask someone to lend you money on a home, that person is going to want to make sure that the home meets the value of the amount you're purchasing it for. No one is going to lend you money on a home that is upside down. That is not going to happen. So you still need an appraisal whether you're using conventional financing or not. Yes, sir. Now, do, I've only had a couple situations where it didn't require appraisal and that's only because the client was putting like over 30% down. You know what I mean? That was like the only reason. And also um, when the COVID pandemic initially started, uh, one of the transactions I closed, they didn't require they didn't require an appraisal. Now, like I said, and that was just because the amount of the loan, like for instance, I think every house in the neighborhood sold for like 550 or something. And the client was only getting like 400,000 for a loan. So the, so the appraiser said they didn't have to go out there because the home values, you know, exceeded much more than what the loan amount was. So that's the, that's the only reason, but for every conventional loan, you typically always have to have an appraisal. I mean, you always have to have that. That's a great point. So let me clarify this. So here's what happened. Okay, so we have desktop underwriter for Fannie Mae or we have loan prospector for Freddie Mac. When we process, and this is an automated underwriting system, when we process your loan application through the automated underwriting system, the under, automated underwriting system can provide you what's known as a property inspection waiver. And putting more money down can help with that, but it's not necessarily, hey, if you put 400,000 down, you don't have to do a property, inspe property inspection. But if we process your loan through that application and we get an, a waiver, yes, we don't have to do an appraisal, right? But the problem with that is you have no idea whether or not you're going to get that up front. It's few right. and far between. And by the way, Yes, they were making more allowances. I don't know what they did to the algorithm, but they changed some things during the COVID situation where people didn't want strangers in their home. Everyone still didn't get an inspection waiver. That still didn't happen. And then what you're talking about is as far as the appraiser saying that they didn't have to go out to a home, you can also get another designation aside from a property inspection waiver, which is a desktop appraisal. And that mm -hmm. is one where the appraiser doesn't have to go back out to the home or doesn't have to go out to the home. They can pull all the information they need off of the website or off of, uh, you know, one of the websites, Google, whatever, CoreLogic mm -hmm. or not Google, Zillow, you know, Redfin, CoreLogic, whatever. And they can look at the comps there and they can do a desktop appraisal. Again, since everything's opened up, have not seen any designations for that running DU in a while. I still get property inspection waivers from time to time. But the point is, 
it's misleading to paint this picture like everybody who does a conventional mortgage gets away with not having to do an appraisal. Not so, not even close. Um, then I this is what's funny. It said about 25% of buyers are, are forgoing appraisals. Okay. That has no, that has no designation or decision by the buyer. And again, that 25% could be people who are getting property inspection waivers. But short of that, you're still going to have to do them. You're still going to have to do them. So that's that. The other thing, other issue I had, uh, other thing I had a problem with, and oh, by the way, let me give you the numbers on this. So in 2019, in August of 2019, 66% of loans were conventional. Uh, FHA were 10%, VA 2%. Um, no, I'm sorry, 18% were FHA, 10% were VA, 2% were USDA. Now, in August of this year, 73% of loans were conventional, 13% were FHA, 9% were VA, and 1% were USDA. Now, why might more conventional loans be happening now as opposed to 10 years ago? Well, let me tell you, I have a great program. It's not my program, but a few of the lenders I work with offer where now you can qualify buying a home conventional with only 3% down. Now, a few years ago, for you to qualify to buy a home using conventional finance with only 3% down, you had to qualify based on income. And those programs are still around. The only problem with those programs, it's always based on the median income of the area and it's never enough. So like, I think in Orange County right now for those programs, your income cannot exceed somewhere in the neighborhood of like 73,000. Well, how are you gonna afford to buy a property in Orange County and all you have is 73,000 in income? I mean, that's incredibly rare. So they have programs now, they're making the conventional mortgages more functionally um, readily usable for people. Like another reason you might use conventional as opposed to FHA. Uh, number one, the conventional, the uh, DTI, debt to income ratio for conventional mortgages has gone up. It's expanded and it's closer to where FHA financing is now than it was before. Also, student loans. A lot of people have student loans. Well, the way we have to calculate your payment on the student loan is much more, it's much different on an FHA or a VA loan and it's a little less forgiving. Well, not so much FHA because they just changed it or they're changing it in November. But with Freddie Mac, for instance, we get to calculate your student loan payment as half a percentage point of your total balance on that, on that student loan, which FHA will convert to here shortly as well. That's a huge difference because otherwise with FHA, we had to use 1%. So look what that would do to your debt to income ratio. So I just feel like they're, you know, they might've hit on some things that were, you know, accurate or whatever. Um, but I don't think they kind of hit on enough of the other compensating factors that go into that. And then lastly, I'll just say, they also said that if you're buying VA or FHA or whatever, new construction might be the way to go. You should look at that because it's not as competitive and whatnot. That is not true. Care. Have you ever been to a lottery on behalf of a client for a new construction? Property? Absolutely. More than once. <laughs> okay. That, 
seems pretty competitive. What do you think? Super competitive. Okay. Now that's step one. That's the first issue, which it may not be a bad idea. Uh, caveat here. What we experience in Orange County may not be what you experience wherever you are. So that may be a good, that may be a good, uh, good piece of advice. The other issue that you may have with those types of loans, as we're saying that people who are doing FHA or VA loans already have an issue with their debt to income ratio. Typically around these parts, when you buy new construction, you have a much higher tax rate because you have Melarus usually and special assessments. So typically when I'm working on somebody's qualifications on a pre-approval, we don't know where the property is going to be located. So we typically use a rate of one and a quarter percent for the taxes. That is going to be accurate in most places. Mm -hmm. But new construction, I'm usually seeing them at 2% or a little bit higher. And that can significantly throw off your debt to income ratio, which means you now have to try to qualify for a much lower pro property price. And that may not work out for you in the areas you're looking for. So could be an opportunity, but I'm just saying that may not be the, the easiest way. So I would just say, you just have to keep, keep at it, keep at it, keep looking, keep making offers. There are other things you can do, put a higher deposit down initially, you know, have your lender call them and go over the qualifications with them. Like I do, you can do all of that. Tier, you've done a lot of, you've been the listing agent and reviewed a lot of offers. And heck, I review offers on your behalf to assess the financial uh, strength of the offer. So I would like to hear you kind of share, like, what are you looking for as a listing agent when you're looking at these offers as far as like the strength of a financial buyer? Well, I mean, you hit a good point. I mean, obviously having a lender call me, you know, it was always great because that creates more trust and more credibility when it comes to an offer, you know, and also making sure, you know, all the financials are there, you know, having the pre-approval letter, also having the bank statements, even having the DU, right? Having all those things are important because I mean, I've received, I mean, you've got offers that you've reviewed and they've been, you know, um, conventional offers and there's things that are missing, right? Like you looked at it and it's like, wow, this pre-approval is like four months old. Like what's going on, right? So for me, it's like, and you know, one of the things that, that I do because I'm very well known in terms of Orange County so chances of me knowing the other agent on the other side, what I'm working with, where I'm representing buyers is high, right? Because typically I've been in the business for over eight years and I've done a lot of transactions in Orange County, you know? So chances are, if we're going to see four or five or six houses, I typically know at least one of those agents. So for me, when I talk to them, even if it's an FHA, VA buyer, whatever, I use my reputation and our, and our similar interests you know, and I use that as a way to get my clients offers accepted as well as get them in a better position. Because we, Wes, we want offers, you know, for our clients that may not have been the highest offer that the person received. You know what I mean? But the fact of having that credibility and having you call to speak to the listing agent and explain everything that you've done with this client, explain how, you know, we're going to make sure to keep this as a smooth escrow, making sure we're going to close on time or sooner. All those things have helped. So for me, you know, when I'm working with clients, whether they're first time pro buyers, VA buyers, FHA buyers, conventional buyers, whatever, I don't have it in my 
my thought process stating that, oh, yeah, we're not going to find a house for you because you're an FHA buyer. We're not going to find a house for you because you're a VA buyer. I mean, how would you feel if your buyer and your realtor told you that or your lender told you that? Oh, yeah, you know, well, you know, in this market, man, I mean, people aren't really taking FHA and VA buyers. As a, as a buyer, how are you going to feel? You're going to be like, shoot, I guess I'm just not good enough. I guess I got to wait a right. few more years or whatever until I qualify for conventional. It's like, no, you know, like, hey, we may have to look at some other more houses, but guess what? We're going to work hard and we're going to get you your house, you know? So right. for me, you know, it's it's more than just, the VA or the FHA, there's other factors that we use. Like I said, you know, if I know it's a house my client really likes, you know, I make sure great for impression with the agent, you know, calling the agent, introducing myself, telling them about my client, you know, scheduling the showing, reaching out to the agent, explain how the showing went, you know, give them the play by play. And all of a sudden when I submit that offer, like, Oh yeah, this is Kier. Yeah. He's a, he's a good agent. You know, I liked him. I like the fact of his uh, his his appearance. I like the fact of the offer being very clean. I like the fact that his lender actually called me, right? All those things that we do have gotten our offers accepted, whether it's VA or, or FHA. So for me, I don't I don't look at that as a uh, deterrent. You know, for me, it's like if you hire me to help you buy a house as your buyer's agent, I'm going to do my due diligence. I'm going to work as hard as I can to make that happen. And we have been successful in, I would say, over 99% of the people that we've worked with that have actually moved forward with us, we've been successful with them. So, yeah, I'm, for me, like, I mean, that article, I mean, I'm sure those people that wrote that article probably aren't in this day-to-day full-time basis, you know what I mean? Right. They're probably not in this, you know, or maybe they're at some high level when they're maybe not dealing with clients that are VA or FHA anymore, you know? And like you said, it, it's... I mean, that article is not just for us, though. What, what if a normal buyer read that article? They may feel certainly like, oh, yeah, you know what? Yeah, maybe this market is not for us. Maybe you got to wait for us to qualify convention. All of a sudden, you know, and that's why it's important for people out there that are looking to buy. Talk to the experts. Don't let articles sway you different ways. Because remember, at the end of the day, what they're saying is a general statement. It has nothing to do with you, your financial situation your goals, your life. That's why it's important to work with a local person. And that's where you get your advice from. So. Yeah. And I'll just say this last thing is um, maybe that is the problem for some of those people. They have agents who already have a defeatist attitude that think that their clients are not going to get their offer accepted because they're FHA or VA and they don't do anything to think outside the box. One issue I know that some sellers have a concern with, with VA buyers is there are certain fees that VA buyers are not allowed to cover or certain costs. And how do I combat that? I have lenders who will pay for all the non-allowables for a veteran upfront. So the seller never has to worry about where's that money coming from and who's going to deal with it. So again, you need to have people that are on the cutting edge that think outside the box. And most importantly, don't let your qualification status or approval status for whatever type of loan, slow you down or slow them down mentally. If we set out to help a client buy a house, that's what we're going to do, period. However long it takes, whatever it takes, that's what we're going to do. We don't just sit on the sideline and say, well, VA and FHA, we'll just take them out and let them chase their tails till they get tired. No. Mm -mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Now we move on to hot topics. Hot topic. All right. Financial physical. Yes. Ooh, Wes, that sounds kind of painful. <laughs> we won't be drawing any blood that's for sure so uh recently i went into the doctors to do my annual physical you know and that's the time of year where you go in see where you are health wise they draw blood they do all types of tests see where you are in every different type of manner you know make sure that your blood pressure is not too high. Your cholesterol is not out of whack and you're not pre-diabetic or diabetic, all kinds of stuff. And that's important because a lot can change in a year. So one thing that I think more people need to do that don't even think about it, you need to do a financial physical every year or a financial assessment. And most people don't think to do that. Most of us are just waking up every morning, going to work, collecting the check, paying the bills, and going on about our business. But it's important that you're keeping up with what's going on with your finances because you can find ways to, number one, improve your financial situation overall. And also, as you do when you go to a doctor for a physical, you can see trouble signs that are coming, at, coming up along the line, right? and make sure that you do something to change that. So a few things that I think you should do every year, and it doesn't matter. I mean, a lot of people like to think about New Year's or whatever, their resolutions and whatnot, because, you know, outside of losing weight, what's the number two, number two New Year's resolution? I'm get out of debt. Oh, get out of, get debt. out of yeah. debt. That's number two for most people, get out of debt. So Whenever you want to do it, and the first of the year, that's a good time to do it. That's fine. So for starters, what you want to do is you want to take a budget, okay? You want to assess your budget and your spending. And I mean, like, as detailed as possible, down to how many lattes you're getting at Starbucks. And there are many forms online you can use. There are many, um, you know, different websites you can use. And also a lot of banks now will kind of se separate or segment your spending and you can just maybe go on there and look at a report as well. But you want to see what your, what your spending pattern is, right? And you want to see what you're spending on what, are there areas where you can cut back, you know, because like I said, with Starbucks, and that's a great example, or fast food for a lot of people, that's something where you can go a few times a week and it doesn't seem like a big deal. But then when you see how much money it's costing you, I mean, geez, man, even at, even at Burger King, it's like $10 for a combo now, right? So that's something you could spend a lot of money on and not even notice it. So you want to do a detailed budget and figure out where most of your money is going and does it need to go there? Are you spending too much money on that thing? And is there a way to improve on that? You also want to pull all your credit cards that you have balances on. Look at the interest rate. Look at what it's costing you every month and how much is actually being applied toward principal. If there are opportunities to maybe get another card with a zero balance and transfer things, or maybe call your credit card company and request you know, a lower interest rate, even if it's only a teaser rate, even if they say, yeah, we're going to do this for a year, 
that's great. Take the lower rate and then find a way to apply as much as you can to that particular card. So see where your credit cards are and see, you know, what is the plan to pay those off if you want to pay them off? How do you do that? And are you paying too much interest on those? So how do you figure that out? You know, if you have, if you have a financial advisor or you have investment accounts, and whatnot, go sit with your financial advisor. Hey, where do we improve on this? How can we improve on that? You know, is this investment still a good investment? Is it still giving us the return on investment that we want? Look at your mortgage statement. What is your current, you know, what, what are you paying every month? What is your current interest rate compared to where interest rates are in the market right now? Can you refinance? And by the way, if you're one of those people who says, well, I've already paid five years into the mortgage. I don't want to start all over. Guess what? There are 25-year mortgages. There are 27-year mortgages. There are 23-year mortgages. So we can do that for you. So look at your overall financial picture, at least at some point every year, make a plan and then stick to it based on whatever your goals are. If you're somebody who wants to upgrade their house at some point, what's that going to take? How much money do you have to put away every month? Where can you get that money from? You know, things to look at every year. So like I said, we're coming up at the end of the year. Everybody's about to spend a ton of money for the holidays. You know, Christmas is coming up. We have our New Year's resolutions coming up for many of us. So yeah, get prepared and start thinking right now, I'm going to do a financial assessment at the beginning of the year and see where I am financially and see where I can improve and do better. I love that. All right. Now we move on to the economic uh, market update. So we'll start with the recent foreclosure surge. So Wes, talk a little more about that, the recent foreclosure surge. Yeah. So there's a recent foreclosure surge, as you said, uh, basically foreclosures were up 68% in the third quarter of 2021 um, from the previous year. And that altogether was 45,000 people have entered into the foreclosure process nationwide. Now, a couple things, because you've heard us say many times on this show, guys, we're not going back to 2010. It's not going to be that kind of party where all these properties are going to hit the market. So many of you might think right now, aha, we got you. You guys are wrong. We're not going to buy anything right now. It's all going over a cliff again. No, that's not what's happening. Why do I say that? Because it's still lower than the pre-pandemic foreclosure rates. And again, as we said before, there are a lot of people trying to buy, not a lot of people selling, and many people have enough equity in their home to be able to just sell the home if they're in the foreclosure process, which I would venture to say, and I would bet that there's quite a few people in this foreclosure process right now, if they're not fighting to keep the home, they're already working with a realtor to put it on the market. I would bet good money on that. But that is noteworthy. So for those of you who are like, okay, well, there's 45,000 of them nationwide. I'm sure I could find me a good deal. Let's talk about where we're seeing the biggest impact. Uh, so statewide, we're looking at Nevada, Illinois, Delaware, New Jersey. And if we talk about metro areas or get it down to specific cities, the hardest hit are Atlantic City, New Jersey, Peoria, Illinois, Bakersfield. So if you guys want to relocate to Bakersfield and see if you can find you a good deal, now's a good time. And Cleveland, Ohio. So 
again, just something to keep an eye on and whatnot. But as we said before, I really don't believe you're going to see what we saw 10 years ago. Market's too, the market's still too good, too hot. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I also want to talk about, according to the Wall Street Journal, shout out to the Wall Street Journal. I read that every morning. I get the newspaper six days a week. Yes, I'm old school like that. I, I still like to touch. I like to touch books. I like to touch newspapers. That's how I roll. That's just how I roll. So over 4.3 million people have left the job force, right? Over 4 million people have left the job force. According to the Wall Street Journal, U.S. employers are trying to fill over 10 million uh, jobs right now. Over 4.3 million people have left. U.S. Uh, employers are trying to fill over 10 million jobs. Three are These are three of the reasons why they feel that over 4.3 billion people have left the job force. Number one, most of the homes are to income, right? And what they saw, you know, before the pandemic, one of the spouses were working a part-time job, right? Now, since the, the pandemic has started, obviously, you know, jobs have shifted. Some people were laid off. Also, people had an opportunity to work remotely, right? So what we saw in this one demographic of people that people are already working part-time, their spouse, you know, that was maybe the primary breadwinner, was able to work remotely. So all of a sudden, well, the spouse is working remotely, they're not driving back and forth to work. You know, this person's worth working part-time. You know, they weren't really contributing that much income anywhere, making that much income anyway. So they decided to just, you know, just stick to one income. That's one, that's one uh, option. Number two, uh, uh, child care costs, right? That's also something too, because as jobs are lost, you know, certain child care facilities can't take on as many children. So what we're seeing is that one spouse has decided to stay at home and take care of the children. So that's another option. Another is, you know, obviously, you know, when people were receiving unemployment benefits, a lot of people were receiving unemployment benefits, making more money off their unemployment than what they were, you know, working at their jobs. So you had a lot of people decide to sit out and get unemployment. You also had a lot of people stack up their unemployment payments, you know, that they get every month. So we literally have people that have been sitting on this money. Now, all of a sudden, they're just taking this money, you know, and paying whatever they're, whatever they're doing. So these are just three uh, beliefs that they feel why we have this large, uh, over 4 million people, you know, out of jobs right now. So, Wes, what do you think about what's going on with the economy and why people aren't coming back to work? Um, I think part of it is, I think part of it is, um, well, let me back up on the unemployment part. Yeah. Because I know a lot of, uh, quite a few people were concerned that, you know, people were just living the good life while they're unemployment. And as soon as that ended, they would, you know, go back to the workforce. But as we know, the extra bump for unemployment has ended. That ended last month. And the current unemployment rate is only 4.8%, which isn't significantly high. And they're still having trouble finding people to fill these positions. So I feel that um, some people are taking this opportunity to try to find something better to do and start new careers and you know maybe go back to school and whatnot. Maybe they got out of the job that they really didn't like and it wasn't paying great money. And they had a, um, you know, they had a, 
uh, moment of genius and decided I'm going to reinvent myself at this point. I also do think that um, it's going to be part of what you said, the childcare cost. Maybe some people, you know, got behind and can't afford to take a job that doesn't pay enough because they have childcare, they're behind on other bills. So now they're holding out for a job that they really, really need. Some people might have concerns about going back to the workforce because of health issues. You know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. So that could be a part of it as well. And maybe some, maybe some people um, have consolidated because I've heard a number, I forget where, but you know, about the number of uh, millennials and whatnot that have moved back in with parents and whatnot. So, you know, if you don't have to be in the job market, uh, you know, I certainly, if I had the luxury to, would like to take my time and find a job that I really, really want that's going to be fulfilling in the way that I want and that's going to pay me the money that I want. So that also could be, you know, another factor as well. And, you know, um, I don't know what else it could be after that. I really don't. But uh, interesting point, though, because there was only 194,000 jobs that were created and they were expecting 500,000 to be created. But here's the industries that are really picking up. So leisure, hospitality, professional and business services. Those are the, the jobs that, you know, led with. Now, obviously, makes a lot of sense for those particular situations because um, a lot of that was shut down during the pandemic. So, you know, hotels, travel, restaurants, things like that. So that's going to pick up. And like I said, and I think, um, lastly, I'll just end on this. So there were people that, unfortunately, in the pandemic, lost jobs and whatnot, and the unemployment you know, may not have been enough or eventually they lost that and it wasn't enough and they had to figure something else out. Now, whatever else they figured out, maybe they moved in with someone else, they're consolidating, you know, expenses and whatnot that gave them the freedom and the ability to maybe take some time and figure out what they really want to do or wait for the job that they really, really want. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Now we move on to low appraisals. Low appraisals. So, Wes, yes. what's going on with those low appraisals? As we talked about <laughs> that article about conventional loans not needing appraisals, now you got to talk about the low appraisals. So, so what's what's that about? Well, here's what it is. I mean, well, first off, so 13% of appraisals are coming in under value. That's one out of eight, right? Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about how competitive the market is, how hot it is. It's on fire. Got to do it. So... What that's leading to more competition. And now you have people in bidding wars. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the reality of the situation. You have market value and you have appraised value, right? Now, the market value is subject to economics, supply and demand. So if you have a really great house that everybody wants, you're going to have people that want to overbid for it. And someone's going to say, I'm willing to buy this house for a million dollars, but the appraiser doesn't deal with the bidding war. They look at more concrete data. What's sold in this area? How much did it sell for? What are the, you know, what are the comparisons to um, the type of property and the amenities? That's what they're looking at. The bidding war doesn't mean anything to them, period. So 
Obviously, you have people that really, really want the property. They really, really want to get their offer accepted, and they're going to overbid. Now, they overbid on that property. They agree to buy it for that particular amount. The appraiser goes out, and the appraiser says, huh, you guys bid this property up over a million dollars, but the price that the listing agent put it on the market for, 950000 that's really the value of the property. So there's your value. Um, so I'll say this, and we've kind of had this conversation before about the appraise, the appraisal. So if you get yourself in a bidding war, okay, be prepared for that property value coming in low and be prepared to move forward. You know, because far, far too often you have people getting into a bidding war, offering that amount and thinking, well, it's not going to appraise for that. So we'll just go back and negotiate at that time. Well, the seller may not be willing to do that. And they've got nine other people waiting in the wings that are willing to do it. So especially if you don't have, um, especially if you don't have the capital to deal with the fallout, you know, if you're a cash buyer and you just really love the property, have at it. If you're not a cash buyer, but you have enough money to come in with the shortage, have at it. But if you are trying to thread the needle and you're putting 5% down and all you have to your name is that 5%, that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a real problem. So you have to really think about that when you're putting an offer on that property. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, and that's the conversation that, you know, that we have with our clients too. I mean, I never want to put my clients in a position where we're offering a certain amount and all of a sudden they don't have the money to make the stretch. Right. You know, like I'd rather have my client be disappointed and not getting the house of their dreams is what they perceive it to be. <clears throat> than for them to be like, Oh shoot here. I don't have this extra $20,000. What am I going to do? Right. So I never, we never put our clients in that type of situation. And that's why it's really important to work with the, you know, with a true expert, you know, a, a, when you deal with a true professional, because, you know, one of the things that I do before I submit offers, obviously I talk to Wes first, right? But also I make sure that we go over the comparable sales, other homes that are similar that what they sold for. And that's where we use the, the data and information to determine what we're going to offer in the house, right? So we definitely look at that that information first before we actually submit an offer so make sure you who you hire matters truly who you hire matters so all right perfect Absolutely. so that wraps up our economic market update all right now we move on to one of my favorite segments of the show the west files all right now we're going to talk about west files presents beneath the surface so wes what is beneath the surface yeah so again uh, this is the part of the show where i take my personal experiences with helping someone buy a property or go through the approval process and we encounter something that i think hmm this is good this is a good idea to share this with people so they don't make the same mistake so we've all heard the term beauty is only skin deep Right. Right. So here's a here's the situation. I had a client who put an in put in an offer on a property and they decided they were going to buy the property. We get an escrow. 
the home inspection is done, and the client shares with me that there's water damage. And I said, hmm, well, it must be, you know, somewhere where it's not obvious. I mean, because otherwise you would have caught it when you looked at the property. And the client informed me that the water damage was under the cabinets in the kitchen and that they hadn't looked under the cabinets in the kitchen because it, the seller had just repainted the cabinets and they looked real nice. So they didn't look in the cabinet in the kitchen. So let me just start here. Here's my advice to you if you're going to buy a home. Do not rely solely on the home inspection to get your information about the property. The, the issue with that is usually you're not going to want to pay for a home inspection until you're already in escrow on the property. So in the meantime, before that happens, here's my advice to you. We all know that's how this happens. Kier and I have done a lot of open houses. And usually when you come to look at the house the first time, you're rushing through. I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're looking at it from a, uh, you know, from a superficial standpoint. Oh yeah. Look at that paint color. Oh, I don't like the carpets. Those have to go though. You know, Oh, it smells like cat, whatever. Right. But you're like, zip it through there. Like we're going to hold you hostage and make you buy the house. So you take a very superficial, basic look at the house. Here's my advice to you. If you decide that you're really interested in that house, go back a second time. And what I would advise is when you go back the second time, I personally would try to get my agent to be able to, to set up an appointment with the listing agent for just me. Because I don't want to look at the house with the distraction of everybody else running through there. But go back and look at the house before you make an offer and go through everything. Look at everything. Look in the cabinets. Try the light switches. You know, take some measurements if you're worried about whether or not your furniture will fit. Just, what, just whatever you think is important to you before you go submit an offer on the house, go back and take a look at it and go through, through with a fine-tooth comb as much as you can. Now, there are still things that could come up once you get the home inspection that could be an issue for you. For instance, if there are structural issues, you're not going to figure that out by yourself. And that's okay. But you want to at least get through a lot of the basic stuff before you commit to buy the house. Because here's what, here's what the issue is now. So for that buyer, now you're going to end up possibly in a standstill with the seller. Because how, how do we go about this? Because these items are going to have to be repaired probably before the appraisal will get signed off on. So what happens now if the seller doesn't want to pay for it? And by the way, unfortunately, in a lot of these cases, the seller doesn't want to pay for it. That's why they didn't do it up front, <laughs> you know, before they put it on the market. So if the seller doesn't want to pay for it, where does that leave you? That leaves you, the buyer, in a position where either you walk away or you have to pay for it and you're paying to repair a house that isn't even yours yet, you know, because God forbid that you pay to make those repairs and for whatever reason, your loan doesn't close. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So, yeah. So take a deeper look than just, like I said, the, the, the surface stuff that you, that you see when you first go into the property. Cause like I said, 
it's worth going back and taking a second look and a deeper look. And, you know, like I said, you don't have to try to be Tim, the tool man, Taylor, or anything like that. And, and, you know, open up pipes and all that. You don't have to do all that, but just take a deeper look at it than, than what you do when you initially go in. Cause I'm telling you right now, Kier, you can attest to it. The way people come through an open house is the amount of time that they're in the house. Usually they did not take that deeper look. They're just going through not. seeing, you know what I mean? How many bedrooms? Okay. Let me check out the bedrooms. Oh, that's a good size. Oh, I like the closet. Oh, that's not enough room for you, honey, whatever. And you guys book, right? But go back and take a, a deeper look. Yeah, I like that. That's good. That's definitely good advice. All right. Now we move on to the city spotlight. City spotlight. All right. City spotlight today is the beautiful city of Westminster, not Westminster. Yes. Not Westminster. It's Westminster. So this yes. is where we switch things up. I'm going to give you guys data on the numbers, and Wes is going to talk about the fun stuff you can do in the city of Westminster. So city of Westminster was incorporated March 27, 1957. There's currently 63 homes available for sale in the city of Westminster. Average days on market in terms of a home coming on the market and being sold is about 31 days. Average sales price in the city of Westminster is 828000 and the median income of the city of Westminster is 63000 Now I'm going to let Wes share. What's the fun things you can do in Westminster? Yeah, so they have a spring festival. They have uh, Keep America Beautiful, where they all get together and kind of figure out what things we can do to you know, upgrade our areas and our city and make sure stays looking beautiful, which is great for property values, obviously, right? Absolutely. So that's good. Uh, they have concerts and movies in the park. They have a Veterans Day car show. They have Safety Day, and that's where you go to the park and the police department and the fire department and some of the paramedics basically can go out there and they give you advice on safety and things you need to do to stay safe and be safe. And I'm sure a lot of that is driven toward what you do when you're actually in your home and how to keep your home safe and all that. So I think that's a good idea. Uh, also, they have Halloween at the mall. Now, Westminster, if you don't know, has a pretty large mall. It's a cool mall. And I can't tell you how many times I've gotten lost in that mall. <laughs> oh, yeah. <Definitely. laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's a pretty cool mall. They have a tree lighting ceremony and they have write a letter to Santa. So you get your kids to write a letter to Santa and I don't know who does it, but someone down in City Hall or whatever responds mm -hmm. back with a letter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Cool, man. Well, yeah, Westminster definitely sounds like a fun city. So, you know, let's give it up for one more time for the city of Westminster. Yes. And if you have any questions about buying, selling, or investing in the city of Westminster, feel free to reach out to us. We would love to help you. Now we move on to our last segment of the show in the news so we'll start with the uh, uh recent resignation uh, jim gruden's uh, resignation raiders coach let's start with that so wes give us more info intel on that situation yeah so john gruden basically had some uh well let me start here so the washington football club 
was under investigation uh, for a sexual harassment suit that was uh, brought uh, from some of the former members of the cheerleader squad. And within that investigation, of course, they always, almost always collect um, emails, company emails. Now, keep in mind that John Gruden's brother was the head football coach of the Washington Football Club. And so he had emailed back and forth between, you know, several people within that organization. And those emails came up and then they were released to the New York Times, unfortunately. Um, now, initially, there was just one comment that he made about the head of the Players Association. That was the first salvo. And he was going to get past that. You know, you had Tony Dungy and Mike Tirico and Sunday Night Football and even Stephen A. Smith, you know, defending him when that first email came out. But then came the other emails that were labeled as... Um, they were labeled as um, misogynistic, uh, homophobic, uh, you name it, it was there. And so then I'm guessing they reached an agreement with the, uh, between John Gruden and the Raiders organization, uh, specifically the owner, Mark Davis, because keep in mind, the Raiders signed him to a 10-year, $120 million contract. And I believe he was four years into that particular um that particular contract. So he decided to resign. We don't know the details of the resignation. So for right now, we don't know how much of that $120 million contract he's getting paid. Uh, we don't know any of that right now, but he resigned and um, yeah, his football career or his, his football career might be over as far as his involvement with the NFL. Um, Cause I can't see at this point, someone taking a chance and putting him back into the media side of things, keep in mind, he was, when these emails were uh, written, he was still, he was not formally uh, employee of the NFL. He was the voice of Monday night football. You know, he was the, uh, I guess we call him the color analyst of Monday night football. So I don't see that happening again, as far as another NFL team taking a flyer on him. I don't see that either. So I don't know. Maybe he can, USC needs a coach. Maybe he can get into college football. <laughs> One never knows, but I, I, I don't know if he's going to have an opportunity in the NFL again. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's, I mean, when you're in a position like that, I mean, you know, you're, you're a leader, you know, and the thing is, you know, being part of organization, you have set standards and morals that you have to follow. Right. right. And, you know, when this situation happens, it's like, you know like either they can ride with you or they can make an example out of you and that's what they did with him so we don't know where his fate's going to go so it is what it is i mean at the end of the day you know he put himself in the situation it came to light and now it's just dealing with the circumstances so yeah and, and i'll just say this one last thing you know obviously you don't want to have those attitudes thoughts and actions or whatever and you definitely don't want to put them on paper but at the very least, guys, and, I, and we've seen a number of people end up in this situation. Whatever you're putting on your business email, <laughs> your work email, you never know who's looking at that stuff. And trust me, I can tell you as someone who used to be an executive, you know, a lot of that stuff is being monitored and you never know what kind of situation you're going to end up in because of it. So 
keep it professional. That's all I can tell you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Want to give a shout out to Captain Kurt for going in space for real. So shout out to William Shatner for going to space for real. So that's, that's pretty awesome. At 90 years old, finally wow. got going to space. So pretty, pretty awesome about that. Pretty props to him. All right. Now we move on to Wilder Fury Part 3, man. The trilogy. Yeah. yeah. The trilogy. Um, it was it was a very entertaining fight. Um, you got everything you wanted to see. There were knockdowns, they were very physical, you know, they were throwing throwing punches back and forth. It wasn't, you know, one of those defensive fights that we talk about so much where the guys are kind of, you know, strategizing. Let me tag you here and there without making, you know, make sure I don't get hit. They put it all on the line. You know, uh, Tyson Fury was knocked down twice in the fourth round before he basically put an end to um, Deontay Wilder. I believe it was round 11. Um, man, what a knockout that was. I'm telling you, I don't know if, I don't know if some of you guys are old enough to remember the old Mike Tyson's punch out, what it looked like when he used to knock somebody out, but it, it was reminiscent of that. And um, I'll just say after three fights, and I kind of expected this result anyway, Tyson Fury is just a better boxer than Deontay Wilder. And he really almost never was competitive aside from, I mean, the guy's got one of the hardest punches we've ever seen in the heavyweight division. And with exception to the times when he's, you know, nailing Tyson Fury right on the button and knocking him down, he was being outboxed. And, and that's all three fights. The first fight, of course, uh, Deontay Wilder won because one of those hammers he throws landed, you know, perfectly and knocked out uh, Tyson Fury. But second, second fight, you know, it was just all Tyson Fury. This third fight, with exception to... Um, the two knockdowns in the fourth round again was all Tyson Fury. And, you know, you got to give Deontay Wilder a lot of credit. He fought valiantly. You know, he didn't give up. He, um, you know, he put it all out there. And kudos to them. Much respect. I hope they got paid well for what they did. Very entertaining. But, yeah, I don't think we need to see a fourth fight. And the real question is, who is Tyson Fury going to be fight next? Because I don't know who i can't conceivably think of anybody that actually could beat the guy he's like six nine and 300 pounds and he's like a nimble you know athletic big man so i i I can't even imagine who would who they'd line up for him and would it even be entertaining or even be much of a competition no yeah absolutely absolutely and you know hats off to deontay wilder i mean he definitely put it out there he definitely went on his shield so all the respect you know goes to him and Tyson Fury, like you said, he's definitely something that we haven't seen in a while. I mean, he definitely, you know, resembles uh, the Mike Tyson punch out. You know what I mean? Just just seeing that knockout definitely makes me think of Tyson when he knocked out. I think it was um, Riddick Bow, maybe. I think maybe. I mean, line him up, man. It's like 50 people yeah. Mike Tyson knocked out. Yeah, for sure, exactly. <laughs> the laundry list of people, for Sphinx sure. Was a really good, Sphinx was a really notable knockout. That was a good one. Yeah, that's probably what I'm thinking. Yeah, that's probably what I'm thinking. I'm probably thinking of yeah. probably thinking of the yeah. speaks. That's probably what I'm thinking of. So yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, guys, uh, thank you for for tuning in to episode 21 of Real Talk with Coach Q and Roka West. All right, guys. Until next time, see you on the next episode. 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 Episode.